I don't know about you folks, but I have been waiting about three years to do this episode. I mean, it is a deliciously exciting topic. You can't see like the excitement on my face right now, but it's pretty present. Like figs. <laughs> yeah. Figs. Yeah. I mean, they make some great, great cookies. Fig Newtons are the best. Yeah. You you can't go wrong. And and their invention is Incredible, really, if you think about it. I mean, it proves, essentially, that alchemy is a real thing. Yeah, that's true. It's Wait, true. what? Sir Isaac Newton invented the Fig Newton okay, using alchemy. Yeah, yeah. It was it was the philosopher's fig that he discovered, and it made the cookie. I wonder where he thought of that. A fig actually fell out of a tree, hit him on the head, and bam, that's where the idea came from. Yeah. Huh, figures. Eric isn't the only one who does bad puns. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Eric Brickmont. And I'm Brian Moriarty. Spring has sprung, ladies and gentlemen. It sure has. Spring noise. Spring noise. <laughs> it's here. The uh, the vernal equinox is upon us. Mm-hmm. And uh, daylight savings time, the travesty that it is, I, it's, it's has still... been enforced. Well, let's hope, though, that because California is now... It is now in the legislature for oh, us I to uh, abolish daylight savings time. Thank Even God, if we cause... get rid of it. Oh, sorry. No, I'm just saying thank God because I still have not fully recovered. I'm I'm still trying to adjust. Yeah. Even if we get rid of it in November, it'll still be a full year before it, it no longer has to take effect. Because we still have to spring forward in order for us to get to a place where we are at like zero again, mm. essentially. Oh, okay. So... Sorry, As no matter like which net, way this goes, you mean we like get another a net one. zero, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Before before we go, or before it goes, we got one more to go. So yeah. just Ugh. bear with us. Hang in there. Um, I just find taking a nap, like honestly, taking a nap in the middle of the day. They do it in other countries. We should totally adopt it here. I've been saying this for years. Um, helps quite a bit, actually. The, the practice of a siesta. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm particularly not necessarily right after lunch because that's not healthy for you after you're eating. However, I would say you know. Like around two or three o'clock. The three o'clock feeling, man, it's real. Oh yeah, real it's thing. real. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a lot to talk about in this episode, and if you folks haven't already guessed, we are talking about the famous Sir Isaac Newton. However, we're not, wait, 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 we're not talking about the cookie. Well, we'll talk about those two. Okay, great. Uh, however, I have some news yes. for everyone. Yes, two pieces of news, in fact. It's important that we let this be known. One because we promised we would, and the other because I can't resist it. Breaking so, news. This is awesome. Yes. Yeah, so the first one. I want to send a a well wishes and a quick recovery to my dear Aunt Teresa, who we all love and know on this podcast. Um, she, is she, gl- she injured her leg. Oh, no. Just recently, yes. She did so whilst jogging. She tripped over a tree stump. <gasps> uh, they don't think it's a fracture, but she's, she's going to stay off of it for a little while. Okay. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out... She's feeling much better and can continue jogging. Yes, speedy now, recovery, Aunt Teresa. Yes. Now, I do have to issue an apology on the behalf of Nerds on History, because the injury occurred while she was distracted by listening oh, to the Golden Gate no. Bridge episode, <laughs> which she was so absolutely focused on um, that the, the incident uh, occurred. So, Aunt Teresa, we here at Nerds on History... 
extend our deepest apologies to you. Yes, sincerest apologies. Unfortunately, we can't cover the medical bill. We need to now add a legal disclaimer to our podcast. Yes. Do, not, do, do, not, do not listen to while exercising or operating heavy machinery. <laughs> um, I do... Wow, just the irony. Just the irony in the situation is palpable. We are very sorry, Teresa. Sorry yeah. about that. But we love you, and we know you're getting better, and we're very happy that they think it's not a fracture, and let's keep it that way. Yeah, so. we're, we're sending many nerdy hugs your way. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, What's the other announcement, sir? Well, the other one, we promised our listeners who listened to our um, King Tut episode we did earlier in the right, year. Right, the What's in t- King Tut's junk, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Episode, so, yeah. yeah, poor, poor, poor junk. Anyway, <laughs> uh, King Tut's tomb, as we announced in that episode, they were going to be doing some further investigation into because they have discovered uh, through high-resolution photographs that there are lines and fissures on the northern and western walls that don't belong, suggesting that there is something beyond those walls, that they yep. were intentionally covered up. And the results from the side scan, or ground-penetrating and side-scanning radar have come back, and sure enough, they are showing two very distinct, very intentionally carved-out chasms beyond these walls and there are signs not only that but of both both organic and metallic compounds on the other side of so there could be two sarcophagi in there that we haven't found yet there could be who knows what uh almost certainly there's funerary goods uh Mm -hmm. one of the chambers seems to be quite a bit smaller than the other the other they need a lot more uh, detailed scans. So there's actually a team from National Geographic uh, who will be going in on the 31st of March, which by the time this podcast airs, this will have happened a few days before. Just just a few days. And it will uh, hopefully start revealing even more detailed results. And the um, Minister of Antiquities, uh, El Damate, has said that if there is definitive proof that these are in fact chambers beyond the walls conversation around excavation will begin mm. this could be mm-hmm. the biggest discovery archaeolo- archaeologically of the 21st century that king tut he's just he's so selfish he's a, <laughs> he he is a archaeological narcissist is he, what is, he is he's a hog because he is hogging the, all the 20th attention. century was enough for him the biggest archaeological find of the 20th wasn't enough so now he wants to be the biggest archaeological find of the 21st you know, century but too. at least he waited you know, 16 years. I'm right? just saying, cut, get help. Get help. <laughs> Don't they have therapists on hey, your side hey, of the... Hey, after everything that's been done to him, after everything that's been done yeah, to him. Yeah, where is his junk? Seriously. He Maybe lost, we'll find it. Maybe it's on the other side of the wall. his junk for archaeology. <laughs> and that excuses his narcissism? I, I would think so, yeah. I feel like I want to cut him some slack. Yeah. Yeah, it looks clearly someone else did. <laughs> Perhaps a little too much. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, I will say, though, it won't be found on the other side of the wall. It was found before. It's now since missing. But anyhow, the point is, uh, one of those chambers, I think, is actually a corridor. Based on the results that's come back recently, Mm. I think it's a corridor, and I think it's going to lead to a whole heck of a lot more than people are expecting. Could it lead to a Stargate? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Eric just got very, very, very cold and quiet. Because he knows it's ridiculous, but if he knows, he also knows that if it were real, his nipples would be so hard with excitement. He'd be so confused. He'd be so very, very conflicted <laughs> and confused. You're like, huh. he's like, I don't know what to do with this information. <laughs> what is happening right now? <laughs> um, if you look at any other tomb of the Valley of the Kings, they far outscale King Tut's. 
and any contemporary tomb is at least four times the size. Yeah. But they've all been robbed at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But my point being... That this tomb's got to be bigger. This is very unusual. Very, oh. very unusual. So you, so there's now thinking that it may have actually been a kingly-sized tomb, not just Indeed. a tomb that was used for somebody else, intended or, for somebody else. Or at least, as Nicholas Reeves wants us to believe, uh, a place for the burial place of Nefertiti. Mm. And if that were to come to light, well, let's just say, no matter what is going to be revealed over the next couple of months, uh, this is going to be an absolutely enormous discovery. But it has the potential to become something even it more. has the potential to change what we know about that part of egyptian history which is one steeped in mystery because of the unique nature of his father's reign akhenaten yeah, yeah. so more stuff to come folks when there's more information released we're going to have to revisit the topic if if depending on what they find in the future i swear we will dedicate a whole episode to to those findings uh and to their interpretations sure uh, therefore but Eric's going to have to make some old phone calls to some old contacts and be like, tell me what you know. So, um, <laughs> you know, what, what's the skinny? Come on, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. Come on, come on, come on. I do want to add an addendum. So I've just kind of like getting a life update. So one of the things I've been doing while other than like, you know, work looking for acting work is uh, I've been catching up on The Flash, the TV Ooh, show. Yes. And they've recently, by recently, I mean within the last couple months, they've introduced Hawkman and Hawkgirl right. to that. Now, I don't know if you know this, Eric, but in the DC, the original DC Comics storyline, Hawkman and Hawkgirl are reincarnated uh, versions of Egyptian, um, of Egyptian, of the Egyptian Prince Khufu and uh, a priestess Shaira, named Shaira. Now... Ah, yes, the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Yes, I know. <laughs> I just wanted to say that when I heard it was Prince Khufu, I thought of you. Thank you. Um... <laughs> But what you will also appreciate is that Kendra Saunders, the woman who is Hawkgirl, they cast a woman who is actually of African descent to play that. Oh, nice. All right. So we're, we're halfway there. The guy who plays Carter Hall slash Hawkman is still white. So that's there's still that misgiving. Progress. But, sure. But, you know, I'm going to take the progress as I can get yeah. it. So Maybe we can, you know, go back in time and recast Gods of Egypt. All I'm saying. Oh, exactly. Thank you. Why don't we just Thank forget you. that, e- that's just forget what, that movie and, existed? And that's why I brought it up. In light of the abomination that was that movie... There is progress being made in how with how Egyptians are being represented on on film, at least. So I love that now that it's come out, none of you have tried like you did with uh, Exodus to want me. We don't to even want to, me to go dude. see this movie. No. The subject has not even been approached. Ladies no, and gentlemen. I well, I didn't even want to watch Exodus. No. So why would I want to watch this one? I mean, I, just... I, I saw Exodus, you know, uh, Gods and Kings, and it was on HBO one night. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot wrong with that movie. There's so many things wrong with that movie. You know what? Yes. Let's talk about things that are right. Yes. Let's let's turn let's steer the episode to the actual featured segment. We should probably do that. Yeah. Yes, we did. And of course, as we've sure. mentioned already, we are talking about the grandfather of modern physics and mathematics. We're talking about one of the biggest figures in scientific history. With a sweet, sweet hairdo. The greatest, perhaps, of all curled wigs <laughs> donned upon the head of Sir Isaac Newton. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Quite possibly the most English of physicists that we've ever had. And that's including Stephen Hawking, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. This guy was super, super duper English. Hawking could never do the wig. <laughs> he just couldn't. And he's acknowledged that. And that's fine. That's fine. That's what we're here for. Uh, what we are here to discuss, however, is the significance of this figure in history. Of mm-hmm. course. This person that a lot of people are very aware of. And I use the term aware rather than knowing of 
because we've all seen the imagery of the apple falling from the tree. Yeah. What inspired Apple Computer is to get its name, exactly. We have all heard the term Newton uh, either used to describe a unit of measurement mm-hmm. or used to describe a type of physics, like or a physics, yeah, or a, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes, uh, or um, to that point, a tasty snack treat, right? So yes. there's lots of different uh, ways that we hear this name, but do we all truly know and understand the fascinating life of this man? And the question is, or the answer is really no. I mean, some of us do. The yeah, ones who read. The ones who research this episode, <laughs> I think we know some stuff. That's true. But in the, in the, in the public consciousness, yeah. particularly in America, it's not as well uh, known about his life. That's in, true. In England, he is a he's a huge figure and a big part of their history. And children in school yeah. are taught a lot more. But even still. Here, uh, it's you mostly hear about him in, in science class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of where it drops off. So, just some interesting information about his early life, because I kind of feel like there's some very early influences, things that happened in his childhood that really affected his demeanor and who he was as he grew into an adult and um, really actually did affect his science career. Mm -hmm. Um, He was born um, December 25th, 1642, um, in Woolsthorpe, Lincolnshire, England, which, super British. (laughs) In fact, it was so British, it was just a tiny little hamlet. Oh, yeah. It was a wee, wee mm. hamlet. And yes. he was... This little baby place. Yeah, and he was born to um, a family where um, his father, where he did... Had he made it to Newton's birth, um, he was a, a yeoman and um, and kind of, you know, ran an estate. And um, he unfortunately died three months before um, yeah. right. Isaac Newton was born. Yeah. Um, but his mother, fairly, fairly soon after, within a couple of years, was... Married she, the rector. Yeah, she remarried a reverend. Yeah. Um, Barnabas. Barnabas Smith. And um however when she did remarry, she straight up left Newton behind. Yeah, with his mother or with, with uh his grandmother. With his there. grandmother. And he kind of started his early education, but that really had an effect on him and he was extremely bitter about it. Um Well he was recorded later as saying that he had fits of rage where he wanted to go to his mother's yeah. and stepfather's home and burn it to the ground i mean yeah well and when he was 19 years old he um very interestingly created a catalog of his sins up to that point um and that was one of them that he that he listed where he said that he wanted to to torch his stepfather's mother and their house yeah so and there um, are three children and their three children because yeah. they had three children yeah um isn't he a great guy ladies and gentlemen well i mean abandonment issues for sure i mean i mean that i mean it's a natural reaction to have that rage when you've been neglected basically and it didn't help that he was also a very small and premature child as well um very sickly at birth very sickly and you know was then just being abandoned and while he was in those early years of school he was shipped off to um grantham which is where he started his early education um until his mom became widowed again um, but he was basically lodging with an apothecary and learned early chemistry um, yeah. at a very young age at that point. Before it was called chemistry. Before really. it was called chemistry, yeah. And it's still called alchemy, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's effectively what alchemy was, was an attempt at chemistry. Just yeah. <laughs> a little out of scope, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> A little bit yeah. more mystical, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that Grantham school was really important. It taught him, you know, a lot of the fundamental stuff of, of Greek and Latin, but there were no mathematics. Yeah. His early math education was completely self-taught. Um, 
which, you know, from a guy who helped develop calculus later on down the line to <laughs> yes. not get that basic fundamental math and those math skills from school. That's really yeah. impressive. Remember that saying older than calculus, like that you can say you're older, like because Oxford right. and Cambridge are literally older, older than, calculus than calculus because he developed calculus yeah. while he was teaching. Yeah. There. Well, yeah. Even before that, there are suggestions of it, uh, you know. And this is one of the most interesting aspects of Newton's character is he was very, very reclusive. Yeah. And that he held on to a lot of thoughts and ideas, many of which were highly revolutionary and held on to them for decades Mm -hmm. before he was ready to release them. Um, Not only that, but he he also had a very turbulent uh, attitude. He had these these fits of almost kind of bipolar-like behavior, where in one moment he was very jovial and friendly and going out and getting himself into some trouble, and then moments where he would reflect on these experiences and feel intense shame and guilt and then fall into this kind of Mm -hmm. deep, reclusive depression. And this this period of of hyperactivity and then reclusiveness would continue throughout his entire life. It would be something that would always be present. Right. Well, and and also, you know, him having not being around his mother, kind of being almost rejected by his family, really gave him a very deep sense of insecurity, which um, made him really obsessively anxious and um, irrationally violent when he ever had to be, you know, defensive or anything like that. And it really did carry on for a long time. Which he constantly was. Oh, yeah. This was not a man who could take criticism well. No, not at all. It, it would sometimes cause him extreme depression. Yeah. Just even the, the slightest suggestion that something that he had proposed or thought of could be wrong. Right, absolutely. Um, and then so when um, his mother, Hannah, was widowed again, she came back to, she came back home, went back to the estate, and, you know, with her with her three new, new kids, right? Uh-huh. Um, and she tried to have Isaac become a farmer and run the estate, which was not working for him. Instead of watching the cows, he was curled up with a bug. Yeah. Um, and so they, they realized pretty quickly that was just a bad idea, so they sent him back to school, Um, where he was, you know, back to Grantham where he was attending before. And his uncle was the one who said, you know what, this kid needs to go to college. And he he made it possible for him to go to Cambridge's Trinity College um, as soon as he was ready and done with school. And he ended up doing like effectively a work study program for the time. Um, And he had to wait tables and take care of the, the rooms of wealthier students while he was going to class. And like any college student... Uh, particularly those who attend the prestigious Chico State. Um, he <laughs> Chico! Was, yeah. He was quite fond of getting out with the ladies and having a few uh, drinks in his belly uh, as well. In fact, he was quite the party animal at first. It seems kind of hard to imagine Sir Isaac Newton as this, you know, with, a, with like a beer bong. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure they had their, you know, 17th century equivalent of that. Right. Uh, I mean, drinking is the English national pastime. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And some people say that's offensive. No, that's actually not. That's most see, English people will say, um, yeah, actually. See, it's <laughs> interesting because, truth. in fact, Newton was the one who invented the beer bong. Oh. It was his early studies in gravity that allowed it. To- <laughs> <laughs> that's why he was doing it. Yeah. There must be a way whereby hanging upside down, I could still drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Um, but he also didn't, he didn't live that life for very long. No. Uh, and was, like I said before, riddled with guilt over this. And his roommate in college uh, was someone who was very opposite of him, someone who was very prim and proper and of the upper class and 
uh, noted that he just felt absolutely horrible and terrible for these actions and mm-hmm. would be very self-loathing. In fact, yeah. he he decided that the only way for him to conquer his vices was to completely engulf himself mm-hmm. in his work, yeah. to not allow any other distractions, but to become as obsessed as possible around the various topics. Yeah, that he you know, to hence cataloging all of his sins, because he was actually a very, he was actually a very devout Christian. He just didn't necessarily believe in the church at the time. Well, we'll talk about that when yeah. we get to his yeah. fellowship at Cambridge. That, that right. evolves yeah. in a big It does, yes, it, does. it does. But I mean, but still kind of, you start to see the early traces of his beliefs here by where he's kind of you right. know, turning away from that lifestyle, focusing on his work. And, you know, in this early time at Cambridge, it's, it's very fascinating that, um, Cambridge was a little behind the times in what they were teaching. You have to understand that at the, you know, this this 17th century scientific revolution was already beginning and already going. Um, And he had to learn about Galileo and and Kepler and all these other people from from resources outside of his classrooms because they were not talking about it. They were still going with a very geocentric instead of the heliocentric. They were still talking about Aristotle. Yeah. 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 Well, so much so that we have to remember, too, that at this point, at, at, Eric and I were discussing before the recording as well, is that it was not considered science. It was considered natural philosophy. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Um, it was just a branch of philosophy. And even Aristotle's you know, early works toward understanding the physical universe was considered natural philosophy as well. So Right. Well, and, yeah. And he was considered, he called himself a natural philosopher, as Isaac Newton did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that he had to hear about Copernicus and... And the fact that, you know, the the universe didn't revolve around the Earth. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, in fact, well, the solar system. Still right controversial on. ideas, right? Yeah. Well, let's clarify. The, the idea at this point that the Earth and the moon actually orbit the sun, even though the term wasn't being used, was much more widely accepted than it had been before. Yeah, but it wasn't being taught in the classroom is the point. Be that as it may, it yeah. was still in the consciousness yeah. of a lot of people, and therefore the concepts and ideas of the world is flat and everything else instead revolves around the Earth were ideas that were at this point, because of the work of Galileo, who, you know, interestingly enough, dies the years the, the year that uh, mm-hmm. Sir Isaac Newton is born. He right. uh, he, he did a lot to make that, that spread in a very, very big way. Wait, are you so let's saying, not underplay that. Are you, right, right, right. Are you saying that Newton is the like? No, re- I am not saying Newton is the reincarnation of Galileo. No, of course not, because there probably was overlap. Get in your Stargate and leave. <laughs> um, well, let's take a moment then. Now that we've established the fact that yes, people realized we were going around the sun, and, and talk a little bit about one of Isaac Newton's most famous observations that would lead him down a path to scientific brilliance. And that is his observations around gravity. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course, the famous Apple incident, right? Yes and no. I, I'm talking about a lot of other observations. That that Apple incident is actually one that is heatedly debated right. among Newton biographers as to whether or not this actually happened. Right. Because he actually, there's more belief that he had been developing his ideas about gravity long before that incident happened. And, and more to the point, long after, yeah. uh, when he claims that that incident were to have taken place. Because the first mentions of this story that are recorded by someone besides Newton come to us from Newton's much later life. 
right uh once he had moved to london and was a much more popular figure in the in the british consciousness right so he he tells this story and there's so many different versions there's one where he observes the apple falling in a windstorm and there's one where he observes it while he's out on a walk on his estate they all take place in his mm-hmm. in his home uh his birth home and um he simply has this conclusion at the end of witnessing you know why does the apple always fall seemingly pulled to the center of the earth and why does an apple or a cannonball or a feather all do the same thing why don't they go left why don't they go right why don't they go straight up into the air why does everything do that and let's be clear isaac newton did not invent the concept of gravity gravity had been observed for a very long time before that uh Aristotle, who we were just talking about earlier, he believed that objects that were heavier fell to the earth faster. Yeah. Uh, what he was observing that Galileo, Galileo later, later determined what was happening was air resistance against certain objects, mm-hmm. uh, which will cause those objects to fall differently. But it is simply an interruption in the way that they are falling. Everything falls at a constant speed. And that was his contribution. That was Newton's contribution, exactly. Galileo had started down the right path. Yeah. Uh, He was dropping objects from, you know, very high heights many years before this and rolling objects down hills and observing the way that they do this. But it was the first person to truly calculate mathematically the the acceleration of gravity. Exactly. And the averaging of that acceleration so that you could find the average speed of a falling item. That was Newton. Newton. And Newton, when doing that, had to calculate as close to the infinitesimal as possible, right? Meaning he had to calculate down to zero, as close as he possibly could. And that was the foundations for calculus. Which we now know it as 9.8 meters per second per second. Exactly. Or per second squared, basically. That single thought, which led to the development of the calculations necessary to get to the conclusion was one of the most pivotal moments in human history. Yeah. And it cannot be overstated right. enough because this is a big deal. Well, it's a huge deal because now you have the basics for being able to calculate, you know, kinetic force, right? There's yes. a reason why they ne- there's a reason why they measure force in newtons. Now that if you can calculate the speed of which gravity happens, now you can basically if you know what the acceleration is, you can figure out force is equal to mass times its acceleration. Right. So yeah. Well known today, yes. but a big deal. So we believe, based on Newton's own writings on the subject, that this happened at or around the age of 24. And in doing so, becomes the greatest mathematician on the planet, and nobody knows about it. <laughs> I, just got this, I get this idea of Newton going to a pub and saying, Hey, say that. Do you know who I am? I'm the greatest mathematician on the planet planet really what have you, well i haven't published my works yet but i will and trust me i will be the greatest mathematician on the planet you'll see watch you'll me set upside down and drink beer <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine newton doing that in his mind mm-hmm. and then thinking about approaching the bar and in that moment has a panic attack and then, and then hides underneath a blanket yeah yes yeah because the Newton you're describing would not exist until many, many years later. It, it, very, very much so. <laughs> and, and some reason he sounds like a toothy Tim Curry. Yeah. So. 
but he was he was absolutely paralyzed uh by fear by the idea of anyone knowing about these thoughts you without sure. some more beef behind them mm-hmm. yeah so while he was basically coming up with these ideas, though, and he was completing his, his studies, he was also studying a lot outside the classroom, reading a lot of modern philosophers. Um, and because of that, he really had crappy grades um, at school, um, but which was actually pretty understandable. And um, he was also taking a whole other second set of notes, which, um, you know, ended up turning out to be, as, you know, written in English, certain philosophical questions. And... Um, and it really, this is where he was writing down all of his concepts of um, gravity and, you know, force and all that other such, you know, stuff. His that laws would, of motion that yeah. he would later publish. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. These were the first times that he was putting mm-hmm. pen to paper. Yeah. And so it was pretty, pretty significant period of time in his life and his early work of really starting to express all of that. Yeah. Um, and actually, um, around 1665, the, the Great Plague was going through and and ravaging Europe and it had made its way to Cambridge and it forced the university to close. Um, So he actually went home and pursued private study and took like an 18 month hiatus. Um, And it was during that time that he conceived the method of infinitesimal calculus. Yes. Yeah. So that's what we were essentially just talking about Mm -hmm. with, with what was going on uh, with gravity, right? With his observations yeah. of gravity. Yeah. And also set the foundations for his theory on light and color and gained a significant insight into the laws of planetary motion. This is a big time. 18 months. In 18 months. Yes. What have you done in 18 months? I'm just curious. Granted, uh, we recorded had a few child. episodes of this. He had, <laughs> he had another kid. Um. <laughs> oh, I've done several jigsaw puzzles. Thank you I, very much. I almost read an entire book. <laughs> I fixed Sarah's computer. And I watched a shit ton of Netflix. <laughs> I can, I'm with you on the Netflix. That's, yeah. for, that's for sure. Yeah, I watch a lot of TV too. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now that we've just stated how, how significant we are to our contributions of the world. Yeah. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's, um, let's narrow in on something that we just talked about. And let's talk a little bit about optics oh this is this is a really really exciting topic for eric i love this topic so (laughs) first off let's talk a little bit about the nature of light to start us off with because at this time in history white light was viewed as the most pure source available right Mm -hmm. it was white it was light it was bright and shining and it made perfect sense from a philosophical standpoint for it to be as such and then what happens when you pass light through a prism it breaks up into multiple colors. That's right. It breaks up into its constituent uh, spectra, right? So all the colors of the rainbow, if you want to imagine that in your head, folks. Um, from Roy G. From, Biv. Yes, exactly. This is spread out and displayed across a wall or other surface or what have you. And Newton looks at this and thinks about light not as a single source that is then projected out, but rather many different sources coming together. Mm-hmm. He sees light, and he thinks about it as a as a single entity. And to prove this, he takes the light from that prism, which is now spread across the spectra. He then puts it back through a, a, len- a, a lens and a prism, and actually rejoins the colors into white light. 
And he does this. You know, you're, you're expect what you would expect is when you put light through one prism into the another, mm-hmm. you'd have a whole different set of colors coming from that, and it would just keep going and going and going. And that's not what happens at all. Yeah. Uh, instead, it just rejoins back together, and that light is not pure. It's actually made up. It's not of the absence. It's not the absence of color. It is the combination of colors. Yes. Exactly, yeah. and that was huge, absolutely huge. Yeah, and he he began then working more with lenses, and he wanted to understand how lenses were working because Galileo, keep in mind, created uh, one of the first telescopes to be turned towards the heavens. And to make observations, his famous observations of Jupiter and the moon's surface, of course. But the problem with a refracting telescope, the type that he used with two lenses, is it produces uh, chromatic aberrations, right? So you you actually find that the edges of the lens produce variations in color. Yeah, there's a, uh, a discoloring like ring, basically, that happens in the middle of Precisely. the picture. Precisely. Just like light passes through a prism, as does when it refracts through uh, a refracting telescope. Mm-hmm. And Newton says... Well, you know, nuts to that. Let's go ahead and, and make something a lot better. And invents the Newtonian refract or re- reflector, excuse me. So he uses a a um, a, a mirror, a reflective surface, uh, to gather the light and then reflect that into the eyepiece. And what he notices is not just the chromatic aberration is gone, but he can create something with a significantly larger diameter for gathering light and increase the power you know 40 times i mean we're looking at a huge increase in viewing power and he uses this little baby telescope this little six inch um reflector that he creates in order to observe jupiter in a way that galileo never had the opportunity to do and he's seeing so much more detail and he's observing planetary motions right he's observing the satellites of Jupiter, its four biggest Gano- the the Galilean right. moons moving around, and how do you think he views this instrument? Um, well, I would certainly be like, oh my god, is that a spot? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, how do you think he he steps back and he reflects upon the instrument he's created, and how do you think he views it? In what sense, like emotionally, how he views sure, it? Sure, emotionally, or? in in terms of its significance to the world. Well, I mean, I probably, maybe he thought he was continuing on Galileo's work. Okay, so maybe he's yeah. carrying on the legacy of yeah. Galileo. What else? Which would make sense, because, I mean, Galileo did die the year that Newton was born. That is true. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like, I, It's something that isn't even like... For, for somebody as renowned as being emotionally moved as Newton was able to be, he views it as nothing more than a toy. Really? Yes. I had a suspicion, because oftentimes it's the biggest... Uh, breakthroughs that are viewed as, oh, yeah, that's the thing. He, he essentially stood back and said, oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it was his friends and colleagues around him who said, uh, I think this is kind of a bigger deal than you realize. Yeah. And they actually end up sending a prototype to King Charles II, mm. who is absolutely fascinated by the device and thinks it's the cat's pajamas. And that <laughs> actually begins... Uh, yes, I use the term cat's pajamas. Actually thinks that uh, that actually begins uh, Newton's rise towards stardom. Well, and it's it's also really interesting because this is also a little bit of uh, the, like his, you know, his view on optics and everything like that, his, his ideas on optics, also became the, the breeding ground for his biggest rivalry oh, professionally. Um, and that was with Robert Hooke, who... Captain Hooke, as I like to call him. Yeah, so... 
And whoa, the, and whoa, the, <laughs> whoa. And the biggest disagreement... <laughs> Are you saying that Newton made enemies with Captain Hook? Himself, yeah. Newton was essentially Peter Pan. Newton is That's pro- how he was able to defy gravity, is through his calculations. <laughs> Newton is the proto-pan. <laughs> <laughs> Newton <laughs> is the proto-pan. <laughs> like, I'm just wondering, like, you know, like, did he figure out, like, well, now that I know that gravi- how gravity works, I can defy it. I can now fly! I can fly! He just never wrote it down. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, so Hook really had some some serious disagreements with um, Newton's, you know, theory of optics and really was saying, you know, Newton is saying that it's light particles while well, I'm thinking they're light waves. Yeah. And Newton really, really hated the fact that this guy went through all of his work and tried to point out holes and was trying to disprove him and lost his mind and just went on total rage and was writing scathing stuff about Ro- about Robert Hooke. And it was just the back and forth between the two of them. And by all means, they were colleagues. They were peers in in their, you know, discovery. And, and Hooke was actually the, the president and one of the original members of the Royal Academy, which, you know, for a U.S. comparison, it's the Academy of Sciences, but the British version. Yes. Um, yeah. Is, is it the Royal Academy or the Royal Society? Royal Society. Ro- Royal Society, my bad. Yeah. We know what you're talking about. Yeah, but yeah, yes, yeah. It's, in every, it's one of the biggest scientific circle. It's the biggest scientific circle in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So this led to a, a, a whole mess of trouble that basically kind of um, followed Newton for a very long time because, you know, towards... <laughs> Even as he was getting towards the end of life and he kind of felt like he hit a, a professional wall um, and wasn't getting all the recognition that he wants, Hook knew that and Hook purposely stayed on as president of the Royal Society until he was like absolutely forced to retire yep. because he didn't want Newton to be the president and he knew that he was going to be the next logical choice. Which, of course, he, he did become. He did become eventually yes. as soon as um, Hook stepped down, I think, in what was it? 1705 i think it was so yeah I yeah that that was it mm-hmm. yeah it's an interesting time for newton yeah you know he's a young professor now he's getting notoriety for his ideas around optics in particular uh but he's still holding on to a lot of his biggest stuff he's not ready to reveal it to the world he actually buries it in his mind um and he you know, he, he's, he takes this whole conflict uh, with Hook very, very hard. And it drives him into one of the most interesting periods of his early life. And that is when he starts becoming Isaac Newton, the alchemist. And this is a really strange time for this guy. because Oh, he was on a hardcore path to try and find the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. <laughs> and And... You know, it's also important to note that it was around this time that some of his most heretical ideas were coming to the front of his mind, but never being shared, never being yeah. written. And I'd like, I'd, like, I'd like to save that for a different segment. Let's continue with the the alchemy, though, because his fascination with... It, it just it fascinates me because one of the things we had talked about was that to him, science and religion were no... Where there was no separation. Yes. Right? And so this idea that he could achieve this supernatural... Uh, or supernatural, through natural means, supernatural capability of eternal youth uh, is, is is absolutely fascinating. To well, me. He, sorry, go ahead. No, I wasn't going to say anything. Oh, well, here's the thing. With Newton, 
he approaches alchemy different than anyone else because at this time alchemy was a big thing a lot of people were experimenting with it and there was a lot of alchemic fraud going on all throughout europe in fact alchemy had been outlawed in the united kingdom or excuse me in england at this time not the united kingdom but england at this time um because of the potential they would have towards counterfeits and producing uh gold and what have you like this was a thing where they thought this could happen let's make sure it doesn't i just want to give you a quick little correction there this would have been the united kingdom at this point because uh england became part of the united kingdom with the coronation of james the first and sixth Oh, okay. So, that makes sense then. So this all is right. the early United Kingdom, basically. So I will correct myself and say I was right after all. Yes. Excellent. I love it when that happens. Um, I will also say that I that uh, I almost called him Einstein. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Newton is so reclusive at this time, he doesn't want to publish another thing in his life. That is something that he's made up in his mind. He doesn't want to be ridiculed by anyone again. He just wants to play around with alchemy well he basically had like in 1670 he basically had a nervous breakdown yeah uh the death of his mother um really kind of caused him to be really isolated his um professional rivalry with hook um a lot of the pressure just being put on him um it forced him to basically withdraw for about six years um from any intellectual exchange with people with the exception of a few letters that others were starting with him and he always kept his answers and his replies extremely short. Yeah. His personal assistant did, did stay on and yeah. continued with him throughout this time and was a big support to him. Uh, but what is so interesting is that even as he falls into this world of alchemy, he still remains the Sir Isaac Newton that we all know and love because he begins to practice the scientific method within what he's doing with alchemy. And he takes it very seriously. And he looks to the concepts of different myths and stories of, of, of ancient times and looks for clues within them to build his recipes for alchemy. So he looks to an example of this famous um, mythological story around uh, Mercury and Venus and Vulcan and the torrid love affair they have. And he takes the corresponding elements that he knows they're associated with and he combine, combines them together to see if there was actually uh, a secret message being hidden within it. Uh, so he uses a very interesting method to, to do all of this. Um, and he records everything very in a very detailed fashion to the point where modern scientists today can now recreate his recipes uh, exactly as he had done. Yeah. So he was still Sir Isaac Newton. He was just wanting to find what was promised within this, which is the truths about the universe, the way that God works. Uh, things like immortality were promised from alchemy. And if I am a young man who's very sensitive in a difficult part of my life, this makes perfect sense that I'm going to retreat into something like this. Yeah, which I think is fascinating because... He wrote all this stuff down, of course, right? Because it was in his later, it was later titled The Chemistry of Sir yeah. Isaac Newton. He was essentially the, doing chemistry. Yeah. The chemistry. It was an older spelling of it. But So not only have we talked about the foundations of physics and mathematics, he kind of gave chemistry its name yeah. un- unintentionally. This dude is a titan. He was oh, yeah. a pioneer, He's a, yeah. He is an absolute titan of science and math, for that matter. I do want to take a backpedal for a second, because what is interesting to note at Trinity College, there's a reason why it's called Trinity College, right? It was a school of philosophy, and uh, in order to have a post, the location chair is what it was actually called, uh, you had to be ordained to the Anglican um, priesthood, basically. You had 
um, to to hold that post. It was actually Newton uh, who changed that, who basically, or he didn't change it, rather. He got a dispensation, and it was carried on forward from there. Uh, but there's a reason why he was very reluctant to take on the Anglican priesthood. Um, by about his early 30s, he had he actually had a very big fascination with the Bible and had done lots of work into reading not just one Bible. He had dozens of Bibles in different languages, in ancient languages. We had, he had Bibles in Syriac. He had Bibles that were in ancient Greek. He had Bibles that were in yeah, like 30 Latin. He did. So first of all, aside from him doing all this, he's also a polyglot, by the way. He can read all these ancient languages. Mind-blowing how brilliant this man is. Um, and the big things is he does is he, he p- privately starts to question not question. He fi- privately comes to the conclusion that uh, he does not acknowledge the doctrine of the of the Trinity. I doubt that people aren't unfamiliar with the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's essentially the the doctrine in Christianity that states that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, he rejected that idea. In fact, he was a reader of the ancient writings of Ar- of well, not of the, the ancient writings of Arius, but he was familiar with the ancient writings of Arius. Who I shouldn't say ancient antiquity. We'll say at this point. Um, Arius was a priest in the early third century. This is pre-Council of Nicaea, mind you, uh, who essentially taught that God was one being and that Jesus, while he was certainly a, a holy individual, was not God, that he was a some form of supernatural being that we, we don't know. Um, and the whole term of studying the nature of God, its nature of Jesus is called Christology. Christology. Um, so he subscribed to that Christological concept that Newton was not or that not that Jesus was not uh, divine in nature, um, and because of that, I mean, considering that Anglican at this point is basically English Catholic, he couldn't, in good conscience, take the sacrament of holy orders um, while believing these theories. Um, and there's actually a whole like he actually wrote these arguments about the uh, he called them the corruptions of Scripture. Um, he shared them with um, privately amongst his peers because he didn't want them. He didn't want them want them known at all, but the big thing he takes conjecture with are two passages that basically he believes were added on after the Bible was actually written. They were added in by either cardinals or they were added in by early members of the church to support a theology that was already in place versus driving from the what was actually in the written text. Um, and more specifically, uh, he's talking about First um, John chapter five verse seven. Um, which is in most modern Bibles is actually a verse that's excluded and just annotated that it's not actually there because we don't believe it's truthfully in the Bible, uh, truthfully there to begin with. And then it's also First Timothy, uh, chapter three, verse sixteen, and uh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, um, well, let, let me just recite them real quick because um, they're they're short. Uh, and without controversy uh, is the great mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed uh, on in the world, and received up into glory. That is the that is First Timothy uh, three sixteen. Uh, the it's the actual it's that very interesting uh, semantics about how the words are actually interpreted. Um, his his belief was that it was which was manifested in the flesh, not God is manifested, not God was manifested in the flesh. And that can change the entire context of the phrase itself. Um, with First John, it was very simple, is that 
for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Basically a scriptural description of the of the um of the Trinity because the Word was of course a metaphor for Christ. Christ was the Word made flesh. So um he disputed these. And these weren't actually known, I think, until after his death that he uh if I'm not mistaken, that these he held that these beliefs were were so. Yeah, most he, of he, these came out hundreds of years yeah, later. Yeah, he did share it with a couple of friends. Right. It wasn't public knowledge. Yeah, it wasn't Exa- public knowledge. It wasn't no. public knowledge, yeah. And yet he's interred in Westminster Abbey, which is I think very, very ironic. Um so again, to refer back to the Titanhood of this of this man, he was uh he knew his religion very, 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 very well as well. Um I don't know how he slept, honestly, because like he's all the thoughts running through his head. Well, it's probably why he had as many nervous breakdowns as he did. Yeah, uh, I mean, this guy was—he <laughs> was an insomniac, you think? Yeah, well, he was a huge workaholic. Uh, not only that, but he he loved looking into scripture and analyzing it for clues of the future, and he definitely got on that whole kick of well, when is you know rapture coming? When is yeah. they're going to be the end of times? And he predicts uh, happening sometime before two thousand and sixty. Yeah, but and he did that because he was tired of people making predictions about the end of the world. Well, yeah, he also went back and tried to date huge, you know, biblical events and right. what have you. And that was something that would be carried on by many others in the future. Pretty big deal, too, because he also predicted the, the crucifixion of, of Christ was around 33 AD, which is actually not far from what current archaeology supports. They believe it's more about around uh, 30 CE, because the, I don't know if this is before or after they realized that they had miscalculated the birth of Christ. Um, Christ was actually born 6 BCE, which doesn't... Like, wait, how's that Yeah, possible? It's because they miscalculated how they, mis- they did it. So so kind of jumping back in to where we are in his timeline, um, yeah. he was really, he was doing a lot of the work um, with uh, religion and theology um, in the 1690s. And, and just a little bit before that, um, in 1687 is when he published uh, Principia, um, yeah. which is what shot him up into international prominence. Um and really made him the the big guy that he is. And, of course, he was accused of plagiarism on certain things. And it was just a, a whole other big debacle. <laughs> and and, uh, and another, again, just Hook kind of attacking him constantly. Um, and then he fell into another nervous breakdown in 1693. Um, and it's as to why, uh, it's kind of open to speculation. But um, some people think it's because he was disappointed because he wasn't um, appointed to a higher position in, um, you know, in the government or um, he wasn't, he basically wasn't elevating the way he thought he was. Um, he had, uh, he had a friendship and with, um, do you want to talk about that, Eric? I have to. I'm yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go for it. it. Just, Edmund, Edmund Hawley is one of my absolute favorite astronomers of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's not Haley because you may know him from Haley's Comet of which he, he did discover. Yeah. It's Holly. It's Holly. Yes, Edmund Holly. He had a fascinating relationship and friendship with Sir Isaac Newton, one of incredible encouragement uh, because Newton did not want to do these publications. He didn't want to answer these questions publicly because he was afraid of the ridicule after mm-hmm. so many attacks that were upon him. And, you know, Holly visits him at one point and just says, hey, the planets do not move in concentric circles. They move in eclipses. Why are they moving ellipses? in eclipses? Uh, elliptical ellipses, movement. Excuse me. That's what I meant to say. Pardon me. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the, the next episode. Yeah, yeah. A little teaser for what's to come. Yeah. I mean, keep in um, mind, folks, that all a circle is is a 
symmetrical ellipsis. That's all it is. Yes. So. So, but why do the planets move in this way? And that is a a big deal. And of course, Newton's just like, oh yeah, I figured that out a long time ago. Um, I wrote it down somewhere. Crap, I can't find it. You know what? Let me just do the calculations again, and I'll and I'll mail it to you. Yeah. I mean, that was essentially how this conversation went down. So he's like. Uh, okay yeah. <laughs> and they go their separate ways yeah. and he does exactly that and and the holly's like what are you doing man you have this <laughs> huge answer just laying around your apartment and you won't publish it and he's like you've got to do this it'll change the world i'll give you the money i'll put my name along with you just so we can kind of like do this together so to speak he's not going to take the credit but he's going to help take some heat off of him if it goes bad right and it's just so weird right Forget the toothy Tim Curry. I much more enjoy the idea of Holly and Newton acting like two characters from The Big Lebowski. Because yeah. that's, that's basically what you sound like right now. Right. And that's hilarious. Yeah. And what's so important about these discoveries is it leads to and defines the laws of universal gravitation. Yeah. Universal gravitation. So here's the thing. At this time, yes, gravity was known, right? Newton was writing about it a bit. And... Everyone was under the assumption, because of Galileo, because Galileo pretty much said this, okay, well, gravity on Earth, terrestrial gravitation, is different than gravity in the heavens. Yeah. The heavenly bodies must be ruled by a different set of principles than what is ruled here on Earth. And Newton said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. (laughs) He started to realize, maybe Earth's gravity is also, like, what is making the moon yeah. do what it's doing like he started to realize it's a bigger picture a much bigger picture well, well newton has his three laws of motions right right equal mm-hmm. opposite reaction uh anything that is you know uh you know traveling essentially in a straight line will continue to travel in a straight line until it is interrupted and what have you and he performs these thought experiments and he considers for a moment what if there was a very very powerful cannon upon a mountaintop and If my laws of motion are correct, then when I shoot that cannonball, it will continue to travel in a straight line for infinity. However, that cannot be, because we've seen the observation of the cannonball falling to the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, as I change the angle of the cannon, the cannonball changes its angle as well. So obviously something's pulling it down, and this is gravity, terrestrial gravitation. However, what were to happen if I were with enough power to shoot that cannon high enough into the air, it is my belief that it would be actually captured by the Earth's gravitation and put it into orbit around the Earth. He comes up with this thought experiment, and this is mm-hmm. absolutely revolutionary. Nobody had ever thought and said that before. And he says, the moon is my cannonball. The moon remains in orbit around the Earth. It simply does not crash to the ground. It must be moving at a certain speed. Can we calculate these speeds? And then he starts thinking, well, if the moon is governed by the Earth's gravity, who's to say that the other planetary bodies are not governed by their own gravity? Because if you look at Jupiter, you can see its own moons orbiting just as it does around the Earth. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the groundbreaking concept of universal gravitation. Folks, can we just do another like quick little no, re- recap here? Just a little check so we've got calculus mm-hmm. we've got physics check chemistry yep. check theology yep. check astronomy yep oh double check astrophysics uh-huh. oh baby and universal gravitation which i would qualify as astrophysics but that's yes but this is 
this is this is huge. This is such a big idea. And again, he gets attacked for it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course he does. Oh, yes. Um, Every forward thinker is always challenged by the status quo. And that's kind of the process, right? The gatekeeping of humanity does that because we want to validate that that is actually true and not just some cool idea that we buy into. Yeah. You know? But luckily he had some really, you know, powerful friends who were helping him along this. John Locke was actually totally yep. on his side. Um, in fact, the friend that I was thinking of who he shared his anti-Trinity views. Thank you. It was John Locke. Yeah, John yeah. Locke, yeah. The... Uh, not only that, but of course, the guy who came up with the idea of the social contract, you know, yeah. like his mm -hmm. ideas toward philosophy were huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, um, in 1696, Newton was able to start gaining the actual the government positions that he wanted and get that kind of support. And he became the Warden of the Mint, which was so important to him. He was overjoyed by being able to... <laughs> the warden of the mint which i yeah. think is so quaint considering everything else that he came up with to like just have a a bureaucratic position in finance like <laughs> but he was so thrilled but it's recognition by the crown though well oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a royal position sure that and he used his skill of alchemy and he used his skill of the scientific method to debunk counterfeiters oh of, yeah of which he hung 12 of them in his time oh and he because he was super duper serious like he took this a lot of the pre previous people who had that role were just kind of like oh, whatever. i'm the, I'm the uh -huh. minister of the mint like whatever <laughs> what do you want me to do yeah. i hold I look, I look i look at money yeah i am paid to look at money and this money looks like that money okay good where's my, where's, where's, where's my paycheck <laughs> and Thank he you. but he took it super seriously he was the one that moved the british currency from the pound sterling to the silver and gold standard I, I mean, he just, he was all about this job, and I find it so cute. Um, at this point, he permanently moved to London, um, at, and he'd, uh, he's been living with his niece this whole time. And um, he would live with her until his death, even after she got married. She still brought um, Uncle Isaac al along because... Uh, clearly this is a man who can't take care of himself yeah uh, he's, seriously he is a emotionally frail eccentric scientist yeah but so. we've now the checklist now continues because now we've also added economics yes to yes. the list of mm -hmm. achievements that he's contributed to and very soon parliament as well as he would be elected a member of parliament yep he would also become the Politics. president of the uh of the royal society uh the most famous it was actually oh robert's robert hook's death that I thought it was his retirement. It's actually his death that took that was able to get Newton in that place because Robert Hooke wanted to hold out until he <laughs> until the, his last dying breath to prevent Sir Isaac Newton from being the president of the Royal Society. Yeah, little known fact: Newton actually had a much larger party for the death of Robert Hooke <laughs> than his appointment as president. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm making that up. That's I yeah. don't have any proof of that. Although I'm, I'm I am sure he did. Yeah. yeah. And then in 1705, he was knighted by Queen Anne. Finally, sir. Finally, he's Sir Isaac Newton. And she was um, like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Not as important as me being minister of the mint. <laughs> yeah. And, and so at this point, his career in science and discovery had given way actually to a career of political power and influence instead. So. So can we just say that, can we give him the posthumous post of grandmaster of badassery because yeah. that's clearly like what he the title he deserves I intellectual badassery and, for sure. thank you yeah actually that's my was my original title yeah in my head and i completely missed it so the the grandmaster of intellectual badassery yes well let's also remember that it was at this time that he continued to finally now that he had 
the public recognition, published some of the work that he had been working on for a long time. Mm-hmm. So he finally wrote out his 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 grand work on optics. He finally introduced calculus as a form of mathematics. Even when he was calculating uh, universal gravitation, he was not publicly displaying the fact that he was using calculus to do mm-hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is one reason why nobody knew how the hell he was getting what he was getting. Right. Uh, and then once he introduced calculus and everyone could verify his results. And they're like, oh, now it makes totally sense. Totally makes sense. Well, and another interesting thing was in 1705, the same year that he was knighted, um, he actually had some more controversy pop up regarding his work. And a German mathematician, Gottfried uh, Leibniz, had accused Newton of plagiarizing his research Um claimed that he had discovered calculus several years before the publication of Principia. And um, in 1712, the Royal Society had appointed a committee to verify this. But because of Newton's position as president, he was able to completely appoint all the committee members (laughs) and kind of dictate how the investigation was done. And um, subsequently, subsequently, Sir Isaac Newton was not found guilty of plagiarism. Mm -hmm. Shocking. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but I will say, hey, it's quite possible because Isaac Newton had figured it out even before that and refused to write anything down. Yeah. So, who who, who knows? Uh, yeah. Regardless, Newton's the one who brought it to the world, mm-hmm. and that is the most significant part. There's something yeah. again very badass about the idea that he had to invent a form of mathematics to prove his theories, because that's just what you do. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um. So I'm gonna go ahead and put the button on this. I think because mm-hmm. I. Let's if you will go back to the beginning of the episode when we were talking about his the the nature of his birth that he was premature that he was sickly that they didn't even think he was going to last a few days he ended up living till 80 years old and this poor sickly child here has now accomplished so much over the span of his his time on earth and um when he was about 80, he started experiencing um, digestive issues um, and had to distract his, ch- you know, change his diet. He had to change his, um, what, how much he was moving around. He really had to kind of keep himself more confined. He actually used alchemy to discover veganism. Did he really? No, that's a joke. <laughs> I was going to say, what? I'm um, pretty sure you don't need alchemy to discover that. However, yeah, he made his own tofu. However, there is a there is an idea that part of the reason why he his mental stability got worse and worse, why he had um, digestion issues, etc., could have very much been the fact that he was handling mercury so much. Yeah. Um, and then... Well, Newtonian, um, the laws of Newtonian, Newtonian liquids, uh, a lot of that work was done with mercury. So yeah, makes yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and then, so in March of 1727, um, Newton started having a severe pain in his abdomen, and he blacked out, never regained concent- uh, consciousness, and he died um, at the end of the month at age 84. Yeah. Jeez. And, so. you know, but what an amazing life. You know? Oh, yeah. 84 years old, reinvents science. Um, his work in mathematics and optics and physics uh, the time that he devoted to his studies of biblical chronology, um, his efforts that he made in alchemy, which would mm-hmm. later become the foundation for chemistry, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and on top of all of that, his dominance in aston- you know, astronomy mm-hmm. uh, and other sciences, uh, as well as the work that he did um, in you know Newtonian fluids, which is something we didn't even really talk about, uh, his work that he did on the speed of sound, um, in the uh, the laws of cooling, I mean, there is so much yeah. more. Yeah, this amazing man did. We just we just 
We don't have the time or, quite frankly, the degrees yeah. uh, to talk about <laughs> to it. To talk about it exactly. Yeah. This is like a 12-point checklist we've developed I know, seriously. Point. But I will say that Isaac Newton is perhaps my favorite physicist who was both born and died on two different dates. What? Yes. So depending on how you're looking at it, if you're looking at it by the <laughs> oh, new true. or the old calendar. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Isaac Newton was both born on December 25th of and, 1642 and, and yeah, January, January 4th, 4th of 1643. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and when, they, also, when they re-standardized calendars, yes. it was a little dicey. <laughs> he, he died on the very day that we're recording this episode in 1620, uh, 1726, mm-hmm. uh, unless you go by the now accepted standard, which is later this month on the 31st. Yeah. Next year. Yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> Folks, you have can't see that what one. just happened. Yeah. I cocked my head a little bit to the right because I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess th- there was a re-standardization of the calendar. No, I get it. So... I was just saying that <laughs> okay. it, it, it boggles the mind. It's, yeah. a little, it's a little weird. It's a little weird. And it, it's very interesting. And what's going to kind of help sag us into um, our next episode that we're doing... Um, we're going to give you a preview of next week's episode? Well, we what I'm actually. saying is that newton's ideas were so fundamental um until about the 20th century when albert einstein would come in and he would overturn newton's concept of the universe that's right because let's remember folks that well newtonian physics is fantastic yep it has one fatal flaw and that is while we can measure the effects of gravity we don't actually know what gravity is yep until our next episode well, actually, it was a long time before that. But even still, yeah. we're going to tell you about it next episode. Yes, we awesome. will. Yes, and with that, let's get into feedback. This week in Listener Feedback. So what we have, this is kind of interesting. So in case you guys have not been paying attention to my little end PSA things at the end of our uh, episodes, you guys can actually leave us a voicemail. What? That's crazy. Um, the number is on the website, and we actually did get a voicemail from one of our loyal listeners. Yay. Hi, Nerds on History. This is Athena. I just wanted to thank you so much for the Through One's Eyes episode with Brian's grandfather. I really enjoyed it. Just getting to hear stories and his cute little laugh. It was just wonderful to hear. And it's our own history. So thank you so much and keep it up. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank Um, you, Athena. We love Athena. And now we get to hear her voice. We do. She's this. She's given us a couple ones before. I think she, we played one of them on Nerds on Film. She did do. Yeah, she left a voicemail for my birthday. She's saying oh, happy mm-hmm. birthday, indeed. Um, so thank you, Athena. I appreciate that. It was great to interview my grandfather, and I'm glad that you saw that it wasn't just a. Lo- it was also a local history, and it's it's just nice to know that it was appreciated. Yep. Okay. So our first piece of feedback is uh, about Nerds on Words. Yay! Uh, from Chris. Uh, he says, nerds, your mission, if you wish to accept it, is to make nerds on words happen. Go, go, go! Please. Thanks. Chris, and he's writing to us from Stafford in the UK. Thank Sweet. you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Another another pin on the map. What do you got for us, Sarah? Uh, yeah, so Rhonda actually wrote us two pieces of feedback, so I'll go ahead and just kind of summarize the two of them. Um, she recently resumed listening because I guess some work project she was doing basically banned, banned all mobile devices. So she wow. wasn't able to, to listen to anything. Um, Where so do she, you work? <laughs> like, do you work for a tech company that's working on a new device of some kind? I'm just curious. Yeah, sometimes that happens. Um, and so she, um, is playing catch up. So she listened to nerds on words, totally loved it. 
Um, and she wanted to thank us for um, making education fun and interesting. Um, and then she also, oh, and she also said that she said she was going to be 60 in May of 2016. So um, happy early birthday. And she lives in Virginia. She lives in Virginia. And then she also wrote in another episode um, saying that she listened to the Golden Gate Bridge episode, really <laughs> enjoyed it, um, and wanted to give a shout out to Eric um, to you know let her know let you know that she enjoyed your agnostic viewpoint yay um, which is great it's a viewpoint that i share as well so um just she says that she recognizes that religion has a significant impact on culture and respects those who are faithful and chosen religion but she doesn't hold any particular doctrine herself so there we go sweet In spoken fact, like a true agnostic yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is um ties directly into the next piece of feedback that we have, uh, which again relates to my call for please giving me some agnostic love. Uh, and this comes from David. He says, dear agnostic nerd, thank you for everything else. Smiley face. Um, <laughs> how simple. How thank Newtonian you. have you, Eric, in your search for validation, agnostic <laughs> validation? Rhonda, David, fellow agnostics and followers of any religion. Thank you for respecting everybody. And me. And yeah. Sarah. And Sarah. Uh, <laughs> though I did want to go back for a quick second, because Rhonda had talked about the Golden Gate Ridge episode. We got a piece of feedback via our Facebook page from Melissa, who states, Hey, guys and gal, uh, just listened to the Golden Gate Bridge episode. Uh, my great-grandfather was one of the people that put on the original coat of paint. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I did not find this out until after he had passed, so I can't ask him any questions about it. But he just wants, she just wants you to know that he was from Flint, Michigan, and his name was Grant Parks. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Grant Parks, uh, for all the work that you did in your life. Keeping that bridge and, orange. Yeah, I still think it should have been purple, but I'm not going to blame your grandpa for it. <laughs> Great grandfather, but yes. Great grandfather. Thank you guys for the feedback. We got a ton of feedback that we get to share. Yeah, next uh, episode. This and the next episode. So... Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners how they can feed us back? Well, uh, if you go to nerdonomy.com, you can find many ways to do that. The easiest one, probably just hit that that talk to us button, and it'll shoot an email right into our inboxes. Uh, alternatively, you can also send us a letter. We have a P.O. box. You can also write us a voicemail. You can send us a package. Whatever. It's all good. Um, you can also hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The thing is nerdonomy. Search for it. You will find us. I promise, promise. you that. Um, but also what you guys can do is uh, tell your friends. Spread the word of nerd and uh, give us a review on iTunes. Just let everybody know you are listening and that you enjoy us thoroughly because we enjoy you thoroughly. I just want to say something. Um, we we are nearing our 150th episode of Nerds on History. We started this podcast with zero listeners, as every podcast does. We have reached over 5,000 recently. And possibly more, because the, the data analytics that we're looking at, it, it's hard to tell exactly well, the what the number of episodes we get downloaded per month is very high. We won't share, share those with you publicly. Um, but our most recent episode has over has over 5,000 uh, downloads. So I'm actually estimating down a little bit to make an average, basically. So we want to thank you guys, because we clearly, you have been telling your friends about us. You've been finding us through the many sources like Stitcher and iTunes and other places the podcast app of course on ios which is our most popular platform um as it turns out so we just i just want to give you guys a thank you from all of us for for doing that keep up the good work keep sending us feedback keep telling your friends keep spreading the word of nerd thank you very much we'll indoctrinate you all yes more <laughs> listeners more <laughs> listeners and if you work hard enough 
we might just make you the grandmaster of intellectual badassery. Yeah. Mm. That's a title we're giving out freely, apparently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you have to work at it. You've seen the checklist, folks. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Word of Nerd is like the first one. You gotta like, you know, Invent Warp Drive is like number five, I think, on the list. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> so? Uh, you're right. It, it is that time, nerds. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com bye bye i could really go for some fig newtons right now actually seriously i am hungry for some snack time. why didn't we get any before we recorded this episode i blame I eric yeah yeah probably I, all I brought was gold dust and lead. Oh, I think you can eat lead. Wait, we only need one more ingredient. We just need figs. Is there an alchemical recipe for fig newtons? No, but I have a fig tree right out here, and I think fig plus gold plus lead equals fig newton. Let's do this. Sounds like a good idea to me. Sweet. Wait, do you have any milk? <laughs>